Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Hello, and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. This is not Mark. This is Jason, assuming guest host responsibilities for this episode. I'm coming to you, as always, from Brooklyn, New York. And this is by chance to clutter up Mark's show by mispronouncing everything. So today we're going to talk about Doctor Who and the Daleks. If you're going to have an American guest host with an over-the-top Brooklyn accent, boy, is this the episode for you. Today we're talking well, not about Doctor Who and the Daleks, but we're talking about the novelization of the 1996 TV movie, an American co-production that aired on the Fox Network in the States on May 14, 1996. So what better way to open this episode than with a reminiscence about baseball, the great American pastime? Don't worry, Mark, I'm going somewhere with this. See, in 1984, when I was 10 going on 11, that was the year that I discovered Doctor Who, a passion that has become an avocation and occasionally an annoyance for 36 years running. But my other passion in 1984 was New York Mets baseball. Growing up in the New York City suburbs in the late 70s, there were two baseball teams to root for, the mighty Yankees, who played the World Series four times in six years between 1976 and 1981, and the lowly, comical Mets, who finished in last place in pretty much all those same years. 1984 was different. 1984 was the year the Mets started to take over New York, thanks to a young and 19-year-old pitcher named Dwight Gooden, who threw a baseball faster and harder and made it curve in directions that no other Mets pitcher, or anyone else in baseball for that matter, had done in decades. That summer, the Mets' home ballpark, Shea Stadium, went from hosting 5,000 fans a night to hosting 50,000 fans a night, and that is not an exaggeration. Two years later, in 1986, the Mets won the World Series for the second and, to date, last time in their history, and that was thanks, in large part, to Dwight Gooden. Unfortunately, when the city of New York threw a ticker tape parade for the, Vic, for the Mets after the 1986 World Series, young Dwight Gooden missed the parade. He had developed a cocaine addiction, unbeknownst to all of us, and missed the parade while sleeping off the mother of all cocaine benders cocaine and good old-fashioned arm injuries derailed his career, and the Mets finally released him in 1994 after one failed drug test too many. But New York loves a good comeback story, and in 1996, the Crosstown Yankees, who were just coming out of their own 15-year slump, took a gamble on Dwight Gooden, and on May 14, 1996, at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, Dwight Gooden pitched the game of his life and ensured himself a place in baseball history. And I missed it, because that was the night that Doctor Who came out of the wilderness, and for one night, starred as a primetime TV movie on Fox, and I missed the crowning achievement of my boyhood baseball hero's career. With me today to talk about the novelization of that TV movie is our good friend Chris. Chris, we are thrilled to have you back on the program. Why don't you go back and reintroduce yourself? Hi, Jason. Thank you for... uh having me here uh, on the podcast. Um, to briefly reintroduce myself, my name is Chris McKeon. I am um, the author from a few years ago of the Doctor Who novel Times Champion, the Sixth Doctor uh, Regeneration Story with the Valayard. And um, more recently, I'm the author of the audio Doctor Who story, um, The Final Game, 
which is a centennial celebration of Roger Delgado's master, who was the master during John Pertwee's era, for anyone who doesn't know. And um, it's this, uh, my adaptation of what would have been Roger Delgado's uh, final television venture back in 1974, but which was sadly shelved um, and replaced with the story Plan of the Spiders due to Roger Delgado's tragic death on the 18th of June, 1973. So, uh, we are, and I'm producing that story through my audio production group, Black Glove Studio. Uh, so we are making that story and producing several others, one of which um, we have just announced... Um, um, besides, we, well, we've announced this, um, the continuation of the Sarah Jane Adventures, Series 5, Volume 2. That's another project that we are doing, which is the um, adaptation of the final three um, te unmade television stories due to Elizabeth Sladen's um, uh, passing on the 19th of April, 2011. And these three stories that we are producing full cast audios are Meet Mr. Smith, um, The Thirteenth Floor, and The Battle of Bannerman Road. So those are a lot of uh, fun uh, adventures to celebrate the memory of Elizabeth Sladen. And one other story that, which I will briefly um, announce, um, we've, which have been announced, um, has been announced through our t Twitter page, is um, Yellow Fever and How to Cure It. This is another story that we are um, I'm writing and adapting. For anyone who maybe might recognize that uh, title, it is one of the um, it's one of the um, lost stories from the Colin Baker years. What would have been his second television series from 1985-86, which was shelved due to the 18-month um, hiatus of Doctor Who back at that time, and then um, replaced eventually with the Trial of a Time Lord. And several of those stories have been pr produced uh, as audios by Big Finish, but one of them, which is not, uh, is of course Yellow Fever. Um, perhaps largely because there's no known script. Uh, but I am writing these scripts as full cast stories, and I'm, um, it's a very exciting adventure to uh, kind of regather all those characters that would have appeared together, such as the Six Doctor Perry, the Master, the Ronnie, and the, and the Autons. It's a really great, uh, neat little adventure to, uh, to tackle. I'm very excited to see how it turns out. In the late 1990s, when I was finishing up law school and spending way too much time on Usenet, I belonged to a loose collective of writers called the Internet Adventures. And we wrote one series of stories with the current doctor, which was the eighth doctor at the time, and then the missing Internet Adventures, which jumped around back and forth, back and forth. So our moderator at the time, I believe Ian, who is still a Facebook friend of mine, pitched the idea for writing Yellow Fever. And I took two chapters for that one. I believe it wound up being 12 chapters altogether. And as it was originally conceived, it was, of course, a story involving the autons. But I believe, and I have not read my chapters in over 20 years, I believe we also made it a crossover story with the Mara. And I wrote two chapters, one under my own name, and one in a really bad 25-year-old sophomoric writer's impersonation of, of Vladimir Nabokov. So uh, this story is buried deep on the bowels of the Internet, and I have not read it in a long time. I suspect that your take is going to be a lot better, or at least better than my two chapters were. But I definitely look forward to seeing what you came up with. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a really neat thing to f learn that you uh, try, 
we're trying to adapt the same story some a while back. So I'm, uh, I'd love to re- read your version at some point. And, and again, thank you also for, for the vote of confidence in what we are trying to do, what I'm trying to write. And uh, it's a three-part story in keeping with, you know, how the version would have been back in the mid-'80s. I've written the first two scripts um, and um, in the process of writing the third. So I'm not quite sure how and where it will end up. Um, but it's it's such a joy and such an amazing kind of discovery process from this little missing corner of uh, Doctor Who history. I'm really excited to see how it turns out, too. Yes. <laughs> well, Chris, if anybody can pull that off, I am sure it is going to be you. Now, it sounds like you and I are coming from slightly different generations of fandom. I started watching Doctor Who on PBS, Channel 21, WLIW, Long Island, New York. I started watching in late 1984... And that means I was watching the new episodes about a year after they came out on the BBC. So I would have first seen season 26 in 1990. And I was so disconnected from fandom, just watching, you know, by myself at 16, 17 years old. I didn't realize the show had been canceled, and I didn't realize that Survival was supposed to be the last episode. I then went off to college in the fall of 1991. And this was back before everybody was given an internet account. You had to kind of discover it in secret and ask for one in the basement of the main campus administration building. So I first got onto email in April 1992, and I discovered RecArch Doctor Who on Usenet within a matter of days. And that's how I caught up with fandom. And I had discovered the new adventures in bookstores on my own late my freshman I would say late the first semester of my freshman year. So November 1991 is when I discovered Time Worm Genesis and Time Worm Exodus. Little did I know that I would later go on to actually meet both of those authors, John Peel and Terrence Dix, but I was much younger back then. So I was on RecArts Doctor Who for pretty much all of my time in college, which is 1991 through 1995. Then I stayed on Rec Arts during my first year of law school. So I was there on the internet when they first announced the commission of the TV movie. Then we were hearing stories trickle out about Philip Siegel and Matthew Jacobs, and a couple of people from Rec Arts somehow managed to not get on set, but they managed to follow the production crew around Vancouver, and they were posting very brief missives. So when the episode finally aired in May of 1996, and I'll talk about that when I finish my Dwight Gooden story at the end of the hour, I was obsessed with the idea of getting to see a new Doctor Who episode for the first time in years. I would actually see a Doctor Who story, and I didn't know how it ended already. I dreamed the episode probably the last three or four nights before it aired. And, of course, my imagination ran wild in ways that you would never actually see filmed. But it was a transcendent experience getting to watch uh, the TV movie in 1996. Now, as a member of RecArts Doctor Who, I was also quite, quite, quite argumentative. Because you put a young guy in his early 20s on the internet with a bunch of other young guys in their early to mid-20s. And we became very, very, very good at arguing and debating. So we had all been following the new adventures and the missing adventures, and we were all huge, huge fans of Virgin Publishing. 
when word came out that BBC Books was going to be releasing the novelization of the TV movie in-house and not doing it through Virgin, many of us were hoping for one of the more beloved Virgin writers to get the honors. And it ended up going to Gary Russell, who at the time was not Arts Doctor Who's favorite author. And of course, you look back on this now, 25 years later, and you realize what an idiot I was because, number one, Gary did a terrific job with the novelization. And he has gone on, of course, to have a long career with Doctor Who, even working on the TV show. He is a fixture at conventions. He is just the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. And there I was, the proverbial uh, 22-year-old nerd in a chat room criticizing Invasion of the Cat People. It's all very embarrassing. So I'm happy now to go back and talk about the novelization in a way that does justice to what Gary was actually able to achieve. The original plan was that you and Mark were going to be talking about the re-release of the novelization under the new Target imprint. Unfortunately, thanks to the COVID-19 slash novel coronavirus pandemic, that release has been delayed. My understanding is that Gary was putting together a new version of the book, and it was not going to be the same text that was released in 1996. Now, obviously, we don't have access to his new draft, so what we've done is we have gone back to the original 1996 text, and if the new version that comes out next year is substantially different, we can come back and revisit and do a second episode talking about what's changed. So that's where I was in 1996. That was the year that I turned 23. I was a completely immature guy on a chat room, which is one of the most dangerous things that you can find on the Internet. And many of us from Records Doctor Who have gone on and have become Doctor Who authors and writers in their own right, and we'll hear a couple of more familiar voices later in the episode. So that's the journey of somebody who was there as it all was happening in 1996. Chris, why don't you tell us about your journey with the TV movie and how you first discovered it and what part it played in your fandom. Well, I'm happy to uh, share my little side of the story of how I discovered the telefilm. Yes, I... um, As I've said before on the podcast, my journey into Doctor Who was a little bit different from um, certain people that were watching Doctor Who as it was airing. Um, I come to it maybe a few years after it um, ended. Uh, ceased original transmission, and I was watching it, uh, like you to a certain extent, on um, PBS. Uh, my channel would be in, East, um, I'm from California, so it was uh, KCET uh, in yes. um, East Los Angeles, and I had the luxury of being able to watch um, most of the classic series, you know, one week after another, just a story per week or such, and, and I could, what would have taken many, you know, a couple decades for the British fans, um, I was able to see in a period of some months, maybe a year or something like that. But then, of course, you come to the end of this, of the run, and at least the the, the bro- as I saw it broadcast by this point, the series has already ended after a few years, and 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 you know, perhaps like you, I didn't know much, you know, what was coming after, but um, I I remember being, you know being this young kid, really loving Doctor Who, and. And then when I was very small, I I, I remember uh, going to a Doctor Who convention somewhere. Not sure where it was, but um, and you know was 
you know, new thing, didn't know much of what was happening and everything, but enough of, you know, that it was a Doctor Who convention. I remember seeing at this one on this one table, this is very interesting, a VHS copy of something that said had the words Doctor Who on it, but it had a doctor I didn't recognize or or didn't really know. And so it was something interesting. Well, what is this? And, and of course, it's a weird time, you know, just because, you know, there were all DVDs were available at that time. But um, it's during that l- it's just a weird thing to see this kind of brick thing, you know, the VHS tape. I knew what a VHS tape was, of course, but it was, you know, you're more used to DVDs. But even so, there there it was, and so I wanted to see what it was. So I, I convinced my parents to uh, to buy it, and we took it home, and and I watched it on our. We had a kind of a kind of a hybrid player, kind of a VHS DVD player, and so I watched it on the V the VHS side of things, and kind of um rarely used side of it but you know there it was and and then it was like this world opened up that was something amazing and wonderful seeing this uh seeing you know you because i'm wondering is this going to be the same as i as i remembered is, is this a, a new version of doctor or whatever and to my delight i see the story starts with sylvester mccoy's doctor looking a little bit different of course just slightly different costume but still recognizably the seventh doctor and the tardis of course looks quite a bit different although i think it looks absolutely amazing and beautiful the um, you know the, the the blue and and the and the wood paneling and everything and the and the place it really feels like it's a place where you could live, not just simply a place where you operate a control, but a place where you, someone could live. And uh, of course, you see the police box and the time vortex and everything, so it's absolutely beautiful. And, and so it just you have the sense that this is the same series. It looks a little different and produced by different people, but it it, it is the same Doctor, same series of Doctor Who. And then of course. Uh, I watched it and loved it. Absolutely loved it. The the design, the dialogue, the 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 actors. I was amazed by Paul McGann and and who he was and and how he portrayed the Doctor and and I think it was a mark. It's a testament of a mark of the quality of the story is that by the end of the adventure, you know, everyone thinks, oh, they like their Doctor that or whichever Doctor who comes. But just like any of the Doctors that came before and since, when I watched Paul McGann for the first time, I I really thought to myself, this is amazing. I, I wish he would never leave. I wish he would all that he would always be the Doctor. And so, um, and of course, the Master, played by Eric Roberts, and I thought Daphne Ashbrook was wonderful as as Grace. Uh, it was an amazing, magical, wonderful time for me. Uh, this young kid to see Doctor Who, this new episode of Doctor Who again, and it was it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed the, um, the entire experience, and I still fondly remember it even now. And and one other thing that I would add, that I will um, want to add about that I feel is interesting about the telefilm, and, and of course with Paul McGann and his performance and uh, and the overall design and production of the telefilm is that in you know in, in my opinion it, it, you know people talk about you know at times in the legal sense and also maybe the stylistic sense Doctor Who is being you know a classic series you know and the new series of course. Um, and they tend to lump Paul McGann into the or group him with the classic Doctors, so the doc, the first seven Doctors, and then his telefilm, and then the, the new series comes after. But being very honest, in hindsight, you know, after watching that story, you know, the for the first time, or at least watching it, it not too long before the new series was was released, was started production was airing. In hindsight, being very honest, the telefilm really, in my opinion, is 
um, much more like, in my opinion, the, the, the first new series adventure. The, the, I, I really consider the Eighth Doctor to be more of a new series Doctor um, than a classic series Doctor. I really don't consider him really a classic series style at all, because when you think of in tone and direction and, and music and and even theme, you're not really dealing with the time war, but, but certainly the style of the Doctor and the Master's conflict and how the Master is and how he's acting and and the and the, even the, the the way that the Eighth Doctor has kind of these uh, his interactions with his companion in the story being Grace and and these maybe even romantic undertones are all these things that you see in the new series they really start here um, in the telefilm. So yes, I, I very much consider the telefilm to be the least a prototype, but but I would really see think really almost the 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 very the beginning of the new series because it everything that like I said the even the the look of the TARDIS to a certain extent you know, the the way the TARDIS looks the 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 set design it's it's and its scale really all the, the many of the things that we consider to be and rightfully so the new series they're all present uh, in the in the telefilm and they're all present with McGann so I really consider McGann to be a new series Doctor um, right for, even from the beginning. It's very. It's quite a very interesting thing, seeing it in hindsight. The TV movie has, if I recall correctly, fallen under some criticism because it opened inside the TARDIS rather than outside, the way that Unearthly Child did. And there are some folks, I'm not necessarily one of them, who felt that the movie would have been better off opening with Grace and then discovering the Doctor and entering the TARDIS organically rather than opening inside the TARDIS, where most of the American viewing public would have been very, very confused. It's funny, though, that you mentioned, number one, about VHS. I am from that generation. I still dial phones, and I still rewind the tape, and I still roll down car windows, even though technology has long since made all those expressions obsolete. So the fact, the fact that you discovered this on VHS, and I was sitting there videotaping the episode as it went out in 1996, but I also had my sister in New York videotape the episode at the same time in case I had a malfunction. So for years and years, I had the Baltimore Fox 45 broadcast with the commercials edited out, and one scene was actually aired twice, so my tape was a couple of minutes longer. And then my sister just threw it on a tape without editing out the commercials on Fox Channel 5 in New York. So I actually had two off-air VHS copies of the thing. So it's funny that you mentioned also about Paul McGann and hoping that he would play the Doctor forever, because thanks to Big Finish, he pretty much has. And he's been recording the Eighth Doctor regularly for, what, 15, 20 years now? And he also was able to come back, and he was able to record his regeneration scene into John Hurt for Night of the Doctor back during the 50th anniversary. And it's amazing to think that we have all this Paul McGann as the Doctor, thanks to audio and thanks to Night of the Doctor. And watching this curious movie in 1996 that did not get picked up for series, it's amazing to think how much of the Eighth Doctor we've gotten over the last 24 years. You raise a really interesting point, and I want to pick up on that. You talk about how the TV movie and the Eighth Doctor is really the first of the new series rather than the classic series. And this is a bit reductionist and it's a bit generalized, but speaking of the first seven Doctors and the first 26 years of the classic series, the Doctor was treated as a charismatic plot device. Sorry, a plot device, I should say. 
those of us who like to speak English. He's a charismatic plot device, and the classic series doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about who the Doctor is. Yes, you have the big revelation in War Games that he is a Time Lord rather than what have you. And then later on, we have the Deadly Assassin. Then we have the hints from the Cartmel Master Plan that the Doctor is far more than just another Time Lord. But by and large, the classic series was content to let the Doctor be whimsical and interesting. Whereas it's one of the hallmarks of the new series that they keep trying to reconstruct and re-explain who Doctor Who is. And of course, that reaches its reductio ad absurdum with the concept of the timeless child, where the Doctor is literally immortal and can be any race or any gender, which is probably not a direction that Sidney Newman thought this show was going to go in back in 1963. But the beginning of that experimentation, let's change your perception of what the Doctor is, really begins here with the infamous, I'm half human on my mother's side. Yes, that's true. The whole, um, the half human concept, which is, I understand they remember it, it definitely was causing controversy at the time amongst some fans. And, you know, if I've looked back on and talked to some people and at the time who knew talking about it, that, that, that was something very shocking and very different. Um, and perhaps like a lot of some other plot threads or ideas that, that have made some, perhaps some controversy more recently. You talk about the timeless child and such. The, the interesting thing, of course, about the, the Doctor being half-human and for being such a major event in the telefilm, because it really kind of carries the whole plot forward, like at least the second half of the story is a, is a major driving force of, of the narrative. It's very interesting then that the, the ha- whole idea of the Doctor being half-human is in the later, for the later doctors and such is, is something that has been largely, if not pretty much, I would actually say completely uh, uh, abandoned or, or, or ignored by, by later, later authors and uh, creators of Doctor Who. However, I, I will say, and not to disagree with you, but the books, the BBC books, which kept the Eighth Doctor license, did develop a pretty long plot thread, which is kind of in the background, but it begins in the Virgin New Adventures, which ran for one year after the TV movie. So Kate Orman's The Room with No Doors, which comes out in early 1997, takes place before the TV movie, but comes out almost a year after. That was the first book to introduce the Doctor's mother, and that becomes a running underground plot thread all the way through Lance Parkin's The Gallifrey Chronicles in 2005, which came out right around the same time as Rose. So the TV movie kind of drops the ball with I'm half human on my mother's side, but the books and the authors certainly pick up the slack and give us an explanation. Not only that is interesting, but it also ties into the previous versions of the TV movie script that were floating around for years before the Philip Siegel movie got made about the doctor journeying in search of his uh, father and who his mother is. So... Yes, you're talking about Penelope Gate. Um, looking it up, Penelope Gate, who's a, a human creator of the time machine, I think the Victorian era, and uh, says she, you know, just created one and traveled through time, and of course met the Seventh Doctor, and you mentioned the novel, The Room with No Doors, and and 
who in uh, in other books uh, like um, mentioned things like the Gallifrey Chronicles, who uh, Penelope later meets the Time Lord named Ulysses, whom she marries, and she moves to Gallifrey. And the idea, you know, this hinted is that that the, these this Time Lord Ulysses and the and the human uh, Penelope Gate, they're like you say, their their son is the Doctor, uh, because they're and that comes from the, the connections made in the novel, the the Infinity Doctors, where the the Doctor in that story says that he has mothers named Penelope. Um, although, of course, also in the same book, the, to perhaps to muddy the waters a little bit, the Doctor says that his father's name was definitely not Ulysses. It's uh, it's it's a very interesting little idea. It's 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 um, it's this this little part of Doctor Who um, um, history is it's kind of this for kind of for, uh, forgotten or maybe even or maybe hidden corner of the Doctor Who mythology, and that if you were to talk to maybe the a ca- a casual fan of Doctor Who that maybe watches the television series, if you would say, "Well, do you, oh yeah, what do you think about the character Penelope Gate?" They would say, "Who's Penelope Gate?" They would, you know, because it's not something that's been mentioned in too many other places, and yet there it is. It exists, and it's a, it's it doesn't reveal. Uh, everything or set it all in stone, but it gives you something as fans, if you're aware of these kind of hidden pockets and corners of Doctor Who, to to talk about and to discuss and to um, to wonder, oh, what what do the what do these things all mean and and uh, and what is what what are the um, what are the ideas of uh, uh, and the implications of such a such a very interesting uh, character. I could do a full-hour podcast on Professor Joyce, who is a one-scene character in the novel Unnatural History, who is strongly suggested to be the Sean Connery incarnation of the Doctor's father, but that is a story for another day. So we are about 30 minutes into taking over and hijacking Mark's show, and we have not done a lot of talking about our subject, which is the novelization of the 1996 film. So for the rest of the recording... We're not going to talk about whether or not the TV movie was good. Certainly it has its flaws, and there are things that, given 24 years hindsight, we would have done differently than Philip Siegel and Matthew Jacobs and the rest of the production team. But writing this book in 1996, Gary Russell did not have the luxury of hindsight. And as he points out in the acknowledgments at the beginning of the book, He says, this book has been written speedily from an excellent script, but with precious little visual reference. So he was writing this book in the dark. He did not know what Jeffrey Sachs was going to do with the screenplay in the editing suite. And he was able to insert some characters into the margin that aren't necessarily in the original script and name them after his friends or other prominent internet fans. So the book doesn't have the chance to correct some of the mistakes that the TV movie makes. It is not fair to criticize the book because of the faults from the script that it inherited. What I want to do is talk about how well written this book is and what it manages to do with the source material and why the book is still a really fascinating read, even if the TV movie itself is kind of a false start and is not the greatest Doctor Who episode ever and didn't have a huge outsized influence on the eventual 2005 through 2020 series. So, Chris, what you're going to do is you are going to walk us through the book by plot summary, and I will jump in with the occasional uh, bit of trivia or bit of prose that worked or perhaps a bit of prose that didn't work, and we have a guest reading towards the end of the story. Chris, why don't you take us through the novelization of the film? 
Well, thank you. And I guess I'm happy to do that, and I'm happy to start uh, with the novelization of the film, and it'll be very interesting to see where it takes us. Um, well, the book starts with a chapter called Out with the Old, and and the first line, of course, is the doctor was lonely, and, and what happens in this uh, well, this chapter is essentially it is um, like kind of like a prologue. If you, if you were to hold... Um, a prologue to what the events of happening in the telefilm, you know, what you see on screen. If you were to have maybe two like tablets in your hand, one has it's a Kindle or or something. It has an ebook for an ebook of the, the novelization. The other is you're watching the uh, events of the telefilm, uh, like comparing. This first chapter is essentially kind of what's happening before the uh, the film, the video gets started, or where we kind of you know kind of what you're seeing in the prologue with the. Uh, with the the Paul McGann narration or something like that, and it just and like I said, the chapter this talks about the Doctor being lonely and describing the TARDIS, um, the interior, how it's changed and it's a little bit different from what it, what it once was. It gives a little hint to how it looked in the original classic series, and um, and so it just describes the way that the the, con- the uh, TARDIS console room looks, and you know it's uh, you know the wood paneling and references the Great Seal of Rassilon, so it's, at least it has, seems to have some type of connection to, or at least understanding Gary Russell of what maybe the console might have looked, was, was going to look like in the actual production. And, and the Doctor, of course, is reading, like, on screen, the time machine, Shewell's time machine, and, and then he, he, um, he gets, and of course he's traveling alone, and references companions, and then he, this thing happens. He gets this. Uh, he hears a voice calling for him, and it's a telepathic message. And and we actually get to um, give a little more context, maybe to what we saw on screen. The ma- um, the doctor realizes that it's the master who's um, speaking to him, and explains who the master is, a rival time lord and such. And uh, we get to um, see the doctor um, hear um, the master speak to, uh, speak to him, and it's. And giving his kind of last will and testament, so we get a little more context of, of what the, what the, uh, how this last will and testament happened, uh, than what you might have, how you see in the prologue of the telefilm, and the doctor, of course, is able to see within his mind's eye the, that a little bit different than what you see on television. The master is, um, um, uh, held prisoner by the Daleks, not and and uh, and he, the crimes are read by the emperor. So we actually see the emperor Dalek from the television series, probably what would have just been evil the Daleks at this, at this time and the Master speaks his last will and testament, he actually speaks it directly to the Doctor, so again a little more context than what you see on, slightly different context than what you see in the, on screen and again slightly different from what was on screen, the Master is uh, when he's killed, it's not like from an, ener- like an energy cage or something he's actually just shot by multiple Dalek weapons and he he dissolves. It's, it's, it describes it as being dissolved in like crystal, you know, falling crystals or something like that. And and then the uh, co- uh, chapter ends with the the doctor deciding, yes, I'm going to have to, I'll, I will honor the master's wishes and uh, and re- return his remains to to Gallifrey. And uh, that's and that's where the first chapter ends. It's uh, and that pretty much leads us right to the beginning of the actual um, the actual events of the telefilm. So. What he's doing also, by the way, not to jump in, but what he's doing is he's also doing a very good Terence Dix pastiche. Because if you're thinking about novelizations in 1996, Terence Dix was the novelizations 
and the first sentence and the description of the console room are all a very effective aping of Terence Dix's style, because if you're going to write a novelization and Terence Dix is not the author, it helps to have a good head nod to Terence Dix in there. And something else that Gary is very well known for is his books are very good at weaving in continuity references. And two of the continuity references in this chapter are really interesting. There's a reference to Gumblejacks, which is the fish that Colin Baker was obsessed with in The Two Doctors. And there's also a reference, a shout-out to Paul Cornell's New Adventures, mentioning the church in Sheldon Boniface, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but that was a recurring setting for Paul Cornell in his books Time Worm Revelation and Happy Endings. So you have a paragraph that is written in a sort of Terence Dick style and works in some continuity references for the Die Hard Classic series fans, but also manages to give a very nice shout-out to the new adventures, which were eventually going to be supplanted by BBC Books and their eventual line of Eighth Doctor adventures. So that's also a little bit of an out-with-the-old, in-with-the-new moment right there, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, yes. It's, it's, it's a, I think Gary Russell's very smart to... Um, to 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 bridge the gap in certain gaps that you know even the television television viewers might not notice, but the book readers have um, would have noticed. Which is okay. Are are the books still there? Are the books still can? Are they still part of the history? But by giving just these little nods to, like you say, Sheldon um, Boniface and and the new adventures and such, he, he, just all it takes is that little brief moment to say yes. All everything that has happened since. The, the classic series ended ha, uh, has still happened and it's all still there and it's all connecting together so no need to worry the doctor is still the doctor including the doctor that we've known for the last little while so yes it is out with the old in with the new but the old is like you say still there it's quite it's very well done and i think a very smart and a very um in a way kind thing to do on gary's part well now we get into the um second chapter of the book, which is called uh, In With The New. We're talking about Out With The Old, In With The New. And uh, this is more or less where the, um, at this point, more or less where the, um, in the book, this is more or less where the uh, telephone is starting. It's slightly said earlier that we see the Doctor, you know, struggles to bring this le- the lector and this, you know, podium into the into the room, and then pretty much, and then we actually see the Doctor, you know, take the Master's remains, which are described as uh, um, Differently than in the telephone, which is described as crystals, and what's very interesting is that you have the um, the, the the book described that inside the crystals, uh, you still see the master's eyes, and they're described as uh, as dark eyes. And that's very interesting too. It's perhaps slightly different from what you see um, on screen, because on screen you have the even before the the death of the the master at the hands of the Daleks or the blasts of the Daleks. His eyes, maybe this was a reference, but callback survival, I'm not so sure. It's different. But the master's eyes are like these snake-like eyes. Um, and so that's a, that's definitely different from from what you see in the um, in the description of the book, which is the master's eyes are dark. Um, but still, it's very interesting that you can see his eyes uh, um, um, within the um, within the crystals, and of course, uh, the doctor then close uh, puts the the master's remains within this, uh, just like very much like in the uh, telefilm, this uh, container, and uh, seals it with a sonic screwdriver, and uh, leaves leaves the uh, 
the, the master of, um, to, and his remains to, for this final return to Gallifrey. And let's talk about that, and let's talk about why he skips it over, because this was the pre-filming script that Gary Russell would have had. Jeffrey Sachs, I would presume, took that and changed it into that lyrical, gorgeous pre-title sequence where the eye motif kind of carries throughout. The eyes on top of the master's death chamber become the master's eyes, which leads us into the opening credits. That was all Jeffrey Sachs, so it wouldn't have been there on the page when Gary Russell is writing. But even though he's writing this in a very different way from how Jeffrey Sachs eventually cut the footage, he does have the eye motif that's very prominent in the text, which is a nice way of guessing what Jeffrey Sachs was going to do. And he also, and I appreciate this, he gives a much better scientific explanation in the book as to how the master manages to survive. And he goes into detail, which the TV movie left out. So the TV movie is like, how is this happening? This is just weird. This makes no sense. And in the book, thankfully, it makes sense because he explains what the master did and why the master survives and turns into that bizarre CGI snake creature. Yes, it is. You're right. It is very interesting how the two kind of slightly different perspectives but still very similar um, uses of the eye motif, um, really nicely dovetailed together, so you can see how they're, they uh, uh, compare and contrast very nicely. And, so, well, this is still the con- move, continuing uh, the book. The chapter um, describes how the master escapes from the, um, the, uh, his, the container and uh, gets into the console, and while, they're go- while the doctor's going back to Gallifrey... Cause the master um, gets into the console his remains and creates a critical time malfunction, uh, just like in the um, on screen. And the uh, doctor um, starts to have to deal with the malfunctioning TARDIS. The story then shifts to Earth, and we meet Chang Lee. Um, and the book, um, unlike the telefilm, it, it gives us quite a bit of back history. It tells his family's story, how Chang Li had an older brother named Chang Ho who got involved with gang members and selling drugs. And um, Chang Ho you know, wanted his father to join the, the organization, but his father refused. And so the gang members killed um, Chang Li's parents. And then sometime later... Um, Cheng Li's brother Cheng Ho is also killed, so that leaves Cheng Li um, fending for himself and becoming part of the part of the gang. And so he he gives him that kind of that darker back, that sad back history in his family, and and um, and it leads to more or less then where we see him in the telefilm uh, with um, you know kind of running you know with with a gun and and on the run from these uh, other gang uh, other gang members. So two things that are interesting there is, number one, one of the gang members who was killed in this shootout in the book is female, which I believe did not happen on television. And the other thing is that I like how he gives Chang Li this tragic backstory because that very much ties into what the classic series didn't do but the new series did, in that companions typically have some moment of tragedy before they enter uh, the doctor's life, and the doctor is there to get him through some big tragedy. So Chang Li's entire family being killed is pretty depressing to read about, but it's a very Russell T Davies touch, don't you think? Oh yes, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's this whole the whole back history of 
you know, the character and his has his family, and and like you say, a tragic, a tragic back history. You know, Chang Li's parents are killed, his brother is killed, he's on his own, and and you know, he, even some of his friends are getting killed. Um, he's like you say, yeah, one of them was a female, uh, and they're killed too. And it's like it's very much what you see in in the new series. I mean, you have Rose, her father being killed in a car accident when she was a a, a baby, and um, and uh, Martha. Um, her coming from a broken home because of her father's uh, infidelity and uh, implied infidelity and such, and um, of course they get back together. But even so, that tra- there's that tragedy there, that difficulty. And Donna, because of real world events, um, she has her parents, but the man who played her father um, died in real life, and so that kind of changes the trajectory of her character from being kind of this somewhat silly, um, you know, w- woman that was failed relationships and such by the time you get to series four because of the real world the man, uh, actor playing your father dying it shifts her character a little bit now she's reevaluating her life and you know, different relationship with her grandfather different relationship with her mother and such so yes you have those very it is very much like we talked before um, connection to the new series motif of these tragic figures uh, before they meet the doctor and then they find something else about themselves and something better a better future once they meet the doctor it's very interesting yes so just to move us on ahead, the Doctor lands in the alley, and as happened on television, the Seventh Doctor is shot by gangland bullets and is taken by ambulance with Chang Li, with Bruce, the friendly neighborhood EMT, who will eventually meet a tragic fate. And they arrive at Walker General Hospital, which in the TV movie was, of course, filmed in Vancouver. What Gary manages to do here is he gives a sense of who all the hospital characters are, because on TV you never got any of those characters' names with one or two exceptions. And it wasn't until I read the book that I realized who was supposed to be who, such as who is Jim Salinger, who is Dr. Swift. The book makes sense of all that. And I think it was fairly sneaky of Gary, but Dr. Swift is leading a tour through the hospital and they are watching as the Seventh Doctor undergoes surgery, which in a real hospital at 11.30 at night, nobody is watching uh, surgery, let alone a group of VIPs. But Gary explains what they're doing there in the middle of the night. And also one of the characters on the tour who's overseeing the surgery is a Mrs. Carrington, which is a name that has a lot of relevance if you're into late 1980s U.S. primetime soap operas. I'm pretty sure that character was not in the script, and I'm pretty sure that was intentional. Uh, yes, as far as I know, yes, you're right. I mean, it's um, there is, of course, the people being led through uh, to watch the searching. There is a on screen. There is an, uh, an older woman, but she's certainly not named Mrs. Carrington, and she uh, doesn't have any dialogue. Certainly, doesn't have the back and forth dialogue she has with the uh, with the uh, with the doctor. Um, and that you, that you mentioned, and, and uh, yeah, yes, it's but it, it's 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 it is neat how you have these different little additions, changes to the script for for various reasons. It's neat. But Dynasty was very popular in the UK, and I believe that there was an overlap between Dynasty fandom and Doctor Who fandom. So I'm quite willing to believe that Mrs. Carrington is a, a head nod. So let's. Let's talk about then. Let's talk about Grace. So let's talk about how she's introduced, because she's obviously more so than Shang Li. She is our primary companion for the rest of the hour. Yes. Well, 
the book introduces her very similarly to how the telefilm does. In the telefilm, they call her, this one other doctor calls her um, Amazing Grace. In the book, they call her Grace Kelly. And um, Grace, just like in this telefilm, it's very similar. She's at an opera house, and Grand, Metro, Grand Metropolitan Opera House, and they're, she's listening uh, to a production of Madame Butterfly. It's a little bit different, perhaps, in that you get a little more dialogue, and she's explaining a little more about to um, to her boyfriend Brian what's what's happening in the uh, in in the um, in in the production in the opera gives a little more of a sense of her character that she's very invested you know her devotion to something that she enjoys it's very similar to the to her character in the telefilm but we get a little a slightly different perspective that she's explaining everything to her um, to her boyfriend Brian and who doesn't seem to be very interested or in the production and he's uh, so but we get to know a little more about Brian just a little bit you know through a little more of a dialogue of who he is and that and um, and what he doesn't really care seem to care about and that would have been impossible on TV where the Brian character was played by a non-speaking extra who bore a slight resemblance to the male lead of the X-Files but otherwise was a non-speaking character and Gary is able to give Brian a little more depth than would have been possible during his one brief appearance on screen. And then, of course, um, uh, Grace, just like in the telefilm, is um, called uh, back to the hospital. She's uh, prepped about the situation with the doctors. They go through the surgery. Just like in the telefilm, Grace um, gets lost, and they have the same problems because she gets lo- doesn't know the doctor's two hearts. The doctor sadly um, does, some doctor dies, essentially. And the... Um, and, the, and then his Grace is, of course, very distraught and uh, is wondering what happened and wants to get to the bottom of the situation. And, of course, the Seventh Doctor's body is taken to the morgue um, um, by, by, these, uh, by these orderlies. Meanwhile, of course, um, just like in the telefilm, Grace uh, meets with uh, Chang Li, and Chang Li uh, steals the Doctor's uh, things. They're left behind, and... Um, and and uh, then this, while in the morgue, the seventh doctor's body regenerates, becomes the eighth doctor. He has that encounter with the orderly Pete, and and um, while he's watching the movie Frankenstein, and and uh, then of course the intercut, you know, the 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 narrative also then talks about how the the snake master um, uh, chooses a. Bruce's body, uh, and uh, and possesses that body, and um, and the master becomes the, the the Eric Roberts master, and the the chapter ends, of course, with the the new Eighth Doctor kind of wandering through these portions of the museum and seeing um, and then asking himself, you know, who am I, and trying to remember why what, he's wondering what he's doing there and who who he is, and that's where the that's where this chapter uh, ends. And that was really superbly well done by Jeffrey Sachs on TV. But Gary, of course, is working from a different script. But I like the little winks and the nods that Gary throws in there. I don't know if they ever told us on TV the number of the uh, morgue slot that the doctor's body was put in. But Gary tells us it is room number eight. Now, that's a very Stephen Moffat-y, where the 11th Doctor is always referring to himself as, you know, on a scale of 10, 11, the fall of the 11th. 
and this is in a Stephen Moffat kind of way, the Eighth Doctor is born in room number eight in the morgue. So I enjoyed that. And there's also the bit in this chapter where the snake being takes over Bruce. It hijacks a ride home in Bruce's coat, and it comes out of the coat at night as Bruce and his wife, or on TV, Mr. and Mrs. Eric Roberts, are in bed. And in the book, Gary says that the snake chooses Bruce rather than Miranda. And Gary writes the line, perhaps the master preferred a male form, which is going to come back and be very, very funny when Michelle Gomez enters Doctor Who about 15 years, 15, 20 years later. Yes, that is is very interesting. <laughs> it's kind of funny that way. I mean, it, it, you know, the book also, Gary also had some detail that he chooses uh, the body and, and the way he describes Bruce is perhaps similar, maybe slightly different to how he is on screen, that he's quite a large man, very muscular, over six feet tall, and so he's a very intimidating and powerful force and figure. And so, uh, But even so, yes, it, perhaps he, this, um, the idea of him <laughs> preferring a male figure is, is quite funny now in, in hindsight. Um, and so now, continuing forward into the next chapter, yeah, which is now called One for Sorrow, Two for Joy, um, we have, you know, it's very similar to what you see on screen. Um, Grace, uh, it's the next day, and Grace is um, still reeling from what happened with, uh, with the, the doctor's, the previous doctor's death and such. Uh, you have the um, doctor, the eighth doctor, now wandering the, the hospital, finding his clothes, trying to figure out what he is, trying to re- remembering what the, that there's something called a TARDIS, but he's not sure what that is. Um, you also have Chang Lee then following him, discovering the TARDIS and trying to get inside. Um, you have the death of Miranda, the um, Bruce's wife, and kind of the introduction of the Roberts master in, in physical form. And um, and then you have uh, uh, Grace and Pete, you know, kind of have in the aftermath of the escape of this John Doe. And, um, and then you have... Um, uh, just like on screen, the, the idea of the uh, of Swift um, wanting to do a cover up, covering up the the, the strange occurrence of the, the, the of this the death of this John Doe um, of the Seventh Doctor, and Grace then threatening to leave, and she she is true to her word, and she quits the hospital, and then you have the the Doctor um, meeting up with Grace in the um, the parking structure and convincing her to take her take him home. Um, and and we'll take him to safety to to check it, to who he is, the uh, the Roberts master, the Bruce master. He uh, returns to the hospital and is now tracing the doctor's whereabouts. He learns about um, Chang Lee taking the doctor's things. Um, we get to the and then we get also to the uh, um, Grace's home and we have the beginnings of the Eighth Doctor kind of discovering who he is and doing making name drops to Puccini and Da Vinci and other things and we learn about. A little about Grace's back history, what made her want to become a doctor, the death because of the death of her, uh, uh, death of um, loved ones, and and her, as she was a child, and then we get to um, Chang Lee, um, getting uh, entering the TARDIS uh, and discovering the master there, and and we and it was just slightly different from what you saw on screen but it's just maybe the like slightly different tone but it's such of the master you know saying that he needs to get his body back from the doctor and of course the, and the way the chapter ends is uh Chang Lee saying well what's in it for me and the master smiles and says you get to live 
So what you have on TV is that Jeffrey Sachs does all this intercutting. And the mass, the doctor being born and regenerating is intercut with Frankenstein. And then there's the looking in the broken mirrors, all very symbolic. Gary didn't have that to work with. So he has Frankenstein on TV, but he doesn't have the intercutting, unfortunately, and he doesn't have the doctor looking at the broken mirror. So Gary's doing a very good job bringing the script to life, uh, but it's not exactly what Jeffrey Sachs ended up doing with the material in the editing suite. Yes, yes, I was just saying, yes, you're right. It, 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 Will Sasso really brings that character to life. He's, um, he get, really gives him kind of an energy and, and, and a different tone than what you see in the book. He's, he's much more manic and much more um, emotional and much more, really just very much more comedic and memorable character because of this, the, the more the volume and, and the sense of confusion and, 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 um, and f- in a way kind of fear of what's happening and what's happening when, uh, and what the, is these inexplicable things that are happening uh, to him that he almost really can't even deal with it. It's, it's very good <laughs> and even now memorable performance. So another thing that Gary does is in terms of continuity references, it was very sneaky and I didn't even pick up on it at the time in 1996, but there is a massive honking quote from City of Death in this chapter when the doctor is trying to find his way through the hospital, he talks about navigating philosophically versus geographically, which is one of the great Douglas Adam lines from City of Death. And I'm kicking myself for missing that in 1996, but it's just staring at me now in the year 2020, and I'm really glad Gary got that in there. It's become one of my favorite lines of dialogue from the classic series. And then you have you have Pete, the morgue attendant, is watching... Tom and Jerry, which obviously they wouldn't have been able to license for the TV movie, so that is not seen on screen. But I don't think that Gary Russell would have had uh, an idea of who was playing the minor cast members. The guy who plays Pete, the morgue attendant, was Will Sasso, who ended up becoming a fixture on the American late-night sketch comedy series Mad TV. He ended up having a pretty prominent career for a few years after the TV movie, which would have been one of his earlier gigs. And he does some really interesting stuff with the character. He brings those lines to life in a way that Matthew Jacobs did not write them. So Pete, as written in the novelization, is coming from the script. doesn't quite give us what Will Sasso gave us. It's not quite as funny or as comical. Yes, it's it's very, very cool. The um, the extra little nods and, and nuggets and Easter eggs that... Uh... That you know, that Gary adds to this and gives a little flavor, saying you know you feel like you're in San Francisco at the time. Well, continuing forward, we have the next chapter, which is called Three for a Girl, and really we start to focus quite a bit on Grace and her reactions to the Doctor and this this new figure, this new man in her life that's really changing her worldview. And the book, uh, the story chapter, can uh, picks up with um, Grace studying the Doctor's blood and saying it's not really his blood, and the doctor's checking, um, uh, trying on the, these, the pair of shoes that were left behind by Brian. Uh, and they leave her apartment or her, her home, and they go out to the uh, park, and it's uh, similar to uh, what was on the screen, so maybe a slightly different tone and, and such, but there's the reference to Gallifrey being maybe in Ireland or Scotland, something you hear a lot in the classic and new series, and the Doctor has this wonderful moment where he's talking about remembering his father and and seeing, feel, remembering Gallifrey, so Gallifrey's first mentioned. Um, the story uh, moves to um, 
back to the TARDIS where Chang Lee is going and the master in the library and the master's talking about his history with the doctor saying he's lost all his sto- sto- uh, the doctor's stolen his lives he mentions Genghis Khan just like in the telefilm um, and the, ma- the master off, uh, gives uh, Chang Lee gold dust uh, it's kind of a temptation and they uh, um, move deeper into the TARDIS and make their way to the cloister room. It's described very similarly to what you hear um, see on screen in the film, and um, and and in its design and, and its uh, and its style. And it's uh, so it's a nice little thing that maybe maybe Gary Russell, who knows, maybe he had some set pictures or something at least of that because he describes it quite similarly to what you see on screen. And there's also references to the X-Files, which is almost obligatory because this is a Fox TV movie shot in Vancouver in 1996, and the X-Files is looming very large over Doctor Who at this point. So Gary just gives it an outright name check. And then someone in the same chapter is reading a very famous San Francisco-based novelist, Armistead Mopan, which I hope I'm not mispronouncing. But I like that Gary put the name check in there as well, which would not have been shown on television and uh once they're in the cloisters of course you know describes the cloister room as, um and even down to the kind of you know the the call columns you know the corners of the um, eye of harmony the copy of the eye of harmony um and the master wants Changli to look into the to the uh, eye and he and he does in a similar way but unlike the telefilm where it's just all Changli sees light there's a sense of Something inside the the eye that Changli sees. It's a very interesting experience where he sees you know stars and 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 galaxies in the universe, the cosmos, and he sees some faces, the Doctor's faces. Not too much description, but there's a little bit there. The Master calls in those past lives. Um, while this is happening, of course, now that just like on screen, the Doctor realizes that once the Master's opened the eye, that that uh, he can feel it and and. Um, and then they, and of course, they have the, the infamous kiss moment and in, in, in this very amazing little scene, very energetic moment. Um, and Chang, um, Chang Li, of course, um, learns more about the TARDIS from uh, <clears throat> he, they, Chang Li and the Master can see. He's learning, Chang Li is learning more because they can see um, through the Doctor's eyes. So that's just like on screen and in the telefilm and. Doctor's kind of raving at this point and scares Grace. Grace runs back to her house. The Doctor um, is trying to get back into into the house. He has a little exchange with a with a woman um, who's not in the telefilm, but Grace is a um, an older lady who's one of Grace's uh, neighbors. And then the Doctor, very similar to what's on screen, the Doctor gets inside Grace's house by walking through her mirror and saying that the world is changing because of the open eye of harmony. Um, and um, then the master um, says we need, they need to um, get you know, find Grace, and she's saying she needs an ambulance. So that gives the master good reason. One slight addition in the book that you don't see on screen is you have a character Joey Sneller, who's one of Bruce's uh, paramedic partners, and they get the we see how they get um, the master gets the ambulance. He uh, returns to this man and kills him, and then he and Chang Lee take the ambulance, and then the come to the end of the chapter. Um, just just like on screen, the doctor says he's lost twenty pounds. Um, he's watching something on television where he's, they talk about the um, the changes happening. They call the Millennium Effects, with strange things happening to the Earth. And then they make there's the no news story about the um, Institute of 
technological research, and the doctor says, oh, I can get the clock there, and then the chapter ends with uh, the master and Changli arriving, and the doctor thinking, oh, we can go to the Institute, and they all leave with uh, with Bruce, with the Bruce master, to uh, a fateful destiny. Gary Russell had mentioned in the acknowledgments that he had the script, but he didn't have a lot of visual reference. So I don't know if he had pictures of what the sets looked like or what have you, but the way that he describes the cloister room seems to me to owe quite a bit to Christopher Bidmead's amazing novelization of Legopolis, where the cloisters is practically open air. And he actually has the master and Changli walk through a grassy area and then enter a cathedral. So they go outdoors and then back indoors, and the Eye of Harmony is inside the cathedral, whereas on television, they didn't have that kind of space or budget, so it's just another indoor room with the gothic trappings. But it's a much more interesting journey in the novelization, and I'm assuming that that was all out of Gary's head and not there on the page. That's just a very visual addition that I'm going to credit the author with. And also, when Chang Li looks into the Eye of Harmony, not only does he see uh, the stars in the universe, but he also impliedly sees the faces of all of the seven previous doctors. This is obviously pre-Timeless Children. And when I had been to Visions 1996 in Chicago, which was the first major U.S. convention after the TV movie came out, Gary Russell had read from the deleted scenes in the book, and he had the target descriptions of each of those six doctors. The descriptions of the six doctors was cut out of the book, I guess by the editor, just for space. But there are vestigial references to Chang Lee recognizing that the doctor has the same beaky nose throughout all of his incarnations. So that material, that material would have been in Chapter 3, but is not there anymore. Maybe it'll come back in the special edition that comes out next year. But something else that I quite liked is that since Gary wasn't watching the episode, since he was writing it before the episode aired, I don't think that he knew how Paul McGann was going to play that scene in the park with Grace. Doesn't he do a great job of capturing the manic energy that Paul McGann brings to that role? Paul McGann is is brilliant, of course, on, on screen. But Gary Russell also is brilliant in this um, as an author because he really is able to, even probably with the limited amount of information that he had, really captures the the manic and happy and positive, beautiful energy of of Paul McGann's performance. Um, perhaps without even knowing what the performance was. So he, there is such a thing as it can be sometimes thought of as a positive as a negative, but. Uh, or negative, but the idea of an omni doctor. Maybe when you have a first story being written with the doctor, and and um, in the negative sense, it might be well, the doctor is not really recognizable. It's just um, whoever's writing the story is writing for any doctor or any actor before the actor has been chosen. So it's all oh, the doctor is a quirky, eccentric person. But then you can have these in a more positive sense, these omni doctor moments um, that really capture uh, specifically this. Uh, an incarnation, omni-doctor moment, meaning, you know, the doctor's manic energy or the doctor has balanced enthusiasm or something, and you can write in such a way that it really matches what you see in the actual actor's performance. So this is a wonderful, wonderfully written moment in the park, and uh, Gary did an excellent job. I, agree, com- I completely agree. And so we get into the next chapter, which is called Four for a Boy, and um, it's very similar. It's covering ground that's very similar in, in the telefilm, which is the starting in the, in the doctor... Grace and the master inside the ambulance. Cheng Li is driving, and um, through the course of a conversation, um, 
talking about the same thing. He's talking about Freud, and then talking about this uh, the kind of famous little moment where he says, "Does Madame Curie kiss as good as me?" And Bruce says, "Oh, as well as you." And it's interesting he has that because I've heard that that was an ad lib by uh, Eric Roberts. But in any case, the, the doctor takes off the ma- ma- discovers takes off the master's glasses, discovers that he's the ma- Bruce's glasses, discovers he's the master. Uh, the master shows one of his weird abilities, spits this strange fluid, and burns Grace's arm, um, which leads to problems later. The doctor and Grace escape the ambulance. There's a traffic jam, of course, just like in the in the telefilm. They steal a uh, policeman's um, a motorcycle in just the same way through using a gun saying I'm going to shoot myself and such and, and the doctor convinces Grace to help him uh, and then there's a big um, the big chase between the doctor's ambulance excuse me the doctor's motorcycle and the master's ambulance and um, the doctor and Grace have their kind of conversations about just you know manic conversations there um, Cheng Li takes a shortcut references to to the Interplay between the master and Cheng Li, um, and and then the um, the doctor and Grace arrive at the Institute of Technological Advancement Research, and and just and it's a relatively short chapter where where it ends is just as you see on screen they re- reach the institute, but then they discover the master and Cheng Li have arrived first, and the last thing you see is the um, the master's ambulance with his doors open wide, so there's a scary ominous sense of of a fateful encounter still looming. And this is where the book is somewhat let down by the source material, because as amazing as the first half of the TV movie is visually and emotionally, and Matthew Jacobs's script is kind of weak in the second half because you have this 90 minute script. So it's the same length as any four part classic doctor who serial between 1963 and 1985. And the four part serial is always accused of having massive padding in part three as they're trying to drag the story out to its climax. And that's why John Nathan Turner substantially reduced the four-part story once you get to the Sylvester McCoy era. So this is the part three material. It's a long chase scene. It's very Pertwee-esque. And the chase scenes are, for me, not so interesting to watch on TV and therefore not quite so interesting to read about. But I, I agree with you. I do like that he has the byplay between uh, the doctor and the master in the ambulance, as good as you, as well as you. And the stuff with the motorcycle cop is kind of sort of interesting. And he's not novelizing a great script. He's novelizing the back end. And all the problems in the script kind of bubble up to the surface here. But Gary's able to keep the ball in motion. And it's probably more readable in print in five pages than it is watchable on TV when that whole sequence takes about... 20 minutes. But then, of course, you arrive at the Institute and you have the big cocktail party in Chapter 5. And what happens there? Well, in this uh, Chapter 5, which is called uh, Five for Silver, um, just like in the telefilm, the Doctor and Grace enter the Institute. One thing that's a little bit different from what you uh, um, have on screen, and you have some, di- it's here where you definitely have some differences between the book and the, um, and the telefilm. Uh, one is that uh, whereas on on screen Grace tries to get the doctor into the institute uh, the proceedings immediately, but she's turned away by security guard even when trying to uh, um, throw her clout and she's saying, "Well, I'm on the board of trustees." The guard says, "No." In the book here, the uh, by being on the board of trustees, she's able to get inside uh, the proceedings very uh, very early. Uh, and then you also have several characters that 
uh, appears. Some that you might briefly see in the uh, telefilm, but the others you don't. You have Gareth, uh, who uh, is one of the security guards, and he's the person that will set, you know deal with the earthquakes and accurately predicting them in some years. And so you have that in play there. So he's there. But then you have other characters like a character named Sophie, who I think might be probably a reference to Ace, or at least Sophie Aldred or something like that. And she's, I don't think, in the book. And then, and so, um, the, the story continues, the chapter continues, and you meet up with, uh, um, Professor Wag, and he's, uh, you know, essentially the same characters you see on screen, but a little bit different. The tone is different than what you see on screen, whereas on screen he's maybe kind of inserting himself to, into the conversation a little more, uh, a little more, you know, goofy and, and silly of a character. Here he seems to have a little more of a gravitas and there's a much of a more of a warmth and um, real respect between Grace and Professor Wagg, um, how he's described and and, uh, and how he seems to be much more of a warm character. And, um, but, of course, then you have the half-human moment um, that happens and the doctor, uh, just like on screen, takes um, Wagg's um, security card and gets... Um, up close to the um, atomic clock to be able to get the skull component to, f- to repair the TARDIS. Um, he has, the doctor is explaining more about the master and his history with the master, just like very similar to what's on screen. Um, he even says in the fight for survival, there are no rules, very similar, same dialogue. Um, the doctor, of course, meets Gareth and they have their moment and he gives him the advice, answering the different um, e- exam question. Um, and a lot of that is this chapter, just kind of going through, um, kind of touring the area, and and then they see the do- uh, the master and Cheng Li, and the, just like on screen, they escape uh, with the fire hose, you know, the, um, and um, and after, after they escape, um, they uh, the doctor and Grace return by the motorcycle to the TARDIS. Uh, just like on screen, you have uh, you have you know how they get into the TARDIS, the whole idea of the you know cubbyhole of the P, you know the spare key. Uh, the, another motorcycle cop arrives, just like on screen, and, uh, enters the TARDIS on his motorcycle, and then you hear him turn around and leaves, kind of scared, screaming. Um, very similar on screen, the Doctor and Grace get inside the TARDIS. They see that the TARDIS has no power, so what do you do? Um, they reference Type 40, just like on screen. And so the Doctor's just also on screen, you know, checking, seeing there's no future. The holographic um, kind of uh, image on the, through the ceiling is right there. And the Doctor says, uh, well, they can jumpstart the TARDIS, after Grace is kind of compelling him, saying, hey, what, what do we do, what do we do? Um, uh, they start... F- Fix, uh, preparing to jumpstart the TARDIS, but just like on screen, Grace starts having a strange experience. You actually hear inside her mind that the, she hears the voice of the Master commanding her to kill the Doctor. She uh, whacks the Doctor with a with a with a tool, and uh, and the end of the uh, chapter is uh, the um, kind of Grace now under the control that possessed by the Master, and the Master and Chengli have reached the TARDIS, and uh, uh, and are setting up for a fateful, terrible climax. And that would have been the part three cliffhanger, I imagine, if this had been a traditional four-part story. So there's a lot of padding in there. So the cocktail party at the Institute, which is most of Chapter 5, I counted three different name checks. So in the TV movie, as I recall, Gareth is by himself, but in the book he has a co-worker, David Bailey, 
who is the name of one of Gary Russell's friends and I believe was a big writer for DWM, Doctor Who magazine, around the time. And he's also mentioned in the acknowledgments of several of Gary's other books. So David Bailey is one of those names that you see in a lot of Doctor Who books around the time, but he is not a character from the TV episode. And also Professor Sullivan is Kathy Sullivan, who's a longtime Doctor Who fan in the States. And she's also mentioned in the acknowledgments to the book. And she's also a mainstay at Gallifrey, the L.A. convention. And if you check in and get your badge, Kathy is one of the people who checks you in and is also a quite prolific uh, YA writer and panelist at multiple science fiction conventions. So I don't think that character appeared anywhere in the TV movie. But Gary takes a friend of his and works her in, and she has quite a memorable scene with the Doctor. And then, of course, we lead into Professor Wag, and this is where we have our guest reading. So we have the absolute pleasure of having with us for the next four minutes, we have Kate Orman and John Blum, who were prolific Doctor Who novelists around the same time. They were the two writers who probably did the most with the TV movie version of The Eighth Doctor during the subsequent Eighth Doctor adventures. They put their books in the same San Francisco universe as the TV movie. And there is a direct line from the TV movie to vampire science to unnatural history, which you don't get in a lot of the other Eighth Doctor adventures, which kind of left the San Francisco material behind. And they were very gracious and generous, and they have done a reading for us of the Professor Wag scene. And let's have a listen. Here's our opportunity, Doctor, said Grace suddenly, and waved towards a rather elderly man. It's Professor Wag. Professor Wag was wearing an evening suit that was probably last worn at a time when he was somewhat slimmer. His only hair was sticking out in little tufts above his ears, and a pair of pince-nez were in danger of toppling off his nose. In his hands was a glass of white wine, some of which was slowly soaking into his shirt, and a few crumbs of smoked salmon bake appeared to have attached themselves to his beard. He, however, looked as if he did not care a jot, as if his philosophy was for people to take him as they found him. Grace, nevertheless, knew it was quite a manufactured image, and adored him even more for it. Grace leaned back delightedly towards the doctor, but kept her attention on Wag as his face dawned with recognition. He designed and built the clock. This whole thing is his baby. She moved forward, hugging Wag. Lovely to see you, Joseph. My dear Grace, what a pleasant surprise. I thought you bored people only turned up at board meetings and the like. Wouldn't miss a good party now, would I? Grace laughed with him. I've brought someone to meet you. Young Brian, is it? Been waiting for this. Give him the old once-over, you know. Grace coughed. No, actually, Brian has, uh, well, that is to say... Didn't know the gift horse when he saw it, eh? Too bad, his loss. Wag turned to the doctor, holding his hand out. Joe Wag, and you are? Pleasure to meet you, Professor. Oh, Wag raised his eyebrows and smiled at Grace. English, good choice, Grace, my dear. Good blood in the veins. He's a friend, Joseph, sighed Grace, not a racehorse. This is Dr. Beach from London. He's got a secret to share with us. The doctor grinned at Wag and pointed straight up. Is there any chance of me getting a closer look at your delightful timepiece? I've always been a bit of a horologist. No, I'm sorry, doctor, said Wag. I'm afraid that I'm the only person allowed up there. The doctor put on his most seductive smile. Maybe you could bend the rules just a little. 
Wag looked at the doctor, then Grace, then back again to the doctor. Well, possibly. Grace said you had a secret to share with us. The doctor took Professor Wag by the shoulder, as if to emphasize the conspiratorial nature of their conversation. He leaned forward and whispered into Wag's ear, I am half human on my mother's side. There was a pause, and then Wag threw back his head and let out an enormous laugh, so loud that a lot of the guests stopped talking and turned to look in irritation. Grace noticed that once they realized exactly who had laughed so outrageously, the little parasites smiled back as if they too were in on the joke. Oh, Grace, Wag said, I like this one. He shook the doctor's hand once again. Good to meet you, doctor. I hope we'll meet again. As do I, professor, as do I. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Oh no, doctor, the honor has been all mine. Wag patted his shoulder. Exactly. The doctor just smiled, and Wag looked at Grace and then shrugged and wandered back into the crowd, still chuckling. So witty, doctor, you're so witty. And Wag was swallowed up amongst his faithful and the hangers-on. Grace looked straight at the doctor and grinned. The doctor's face broke into a wide smile, and he raised an eyebrow in triumph as he held his hand out. Nestling in the palm was a small plastic card with an encrypted microstrip along it. Joseph's security pass? Grace was astounded. Pleased, but astounded. Sleight of hand. The doctor flicked his head towards the stairway. Shall we go? <laughs> his head flies off into the stairway. <laughs> now, flick the, now flick the rest of you over there. <laughs> I've always been a bit of a horologist. <laughs> John and Kate, thank you so much. That was terrific. Yes, well done. Yes, well done, uh, John, uh, Jonathan Blum, and Kate Orman. <laughs> that was that was that was that was beautiful. I really that that's quite quite a in a way kind of an almost emotional kind of magical thing to hear. So that was well done. Thank you so much. I would I would I would pay to listen to the two of them. Just play the Eighth Doctor and Grace and Professor Wag in a whole big finished series. Oh, me too. Me too, absolutely. If, if they could do something with those characters, the Eighth Doctor and Grace, voiced by Jonathan Plum and Kate Orman, all that, that would be something that I would, I would definitely want to hear, and I would love to have many adventures with them um, together in, in space and time. That would be, that would be marvelous. I have heard John's Seventh Doctor impersonation of Sylvester McCoy in his fan video, Time Rift. I don't think I'd ever heard him do his Eighth Doctor before. But there you have it. There's John and Kate, plus eight. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> yes, I've heard I think, I think I know what you're talking about there. That's, 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 that's pretty funny. <laughs> and so, now, continuing towards the end, we have the next chapter called Six for Gold. And this is covering towards, you know, the, kind of the climactic part of it. Uh, the telefilm, largely from Chang Li's perspective, and uh, you know his amazement of what's happening between the Doctor and the Master and such, and they have the, just like in the telefilm, this this chapter has the um, has uh, the Doctor taken tied up and taken into the cloister room, and the Doctor wakes up, and Chang Li says, of course, that, um, Grace is possessed, and and then you have the back and forth, the kind of anger between the Doctor and the Master. And the, and, uh, the master's course breaking down a little bit like what you saw on screen. Um, there are some definitely some differences, though, like I said, in this part of the story than from what you see on screen, that just like on screen, yes, uh, because of well, some of the things the master says, Chang Li realizes that the doctor 
it's, um, is not the bad guy, that he's the good guy, and the master's really the bad guy. Really, when the, doc, the master says that I've stolen, I've wasted all my lives, you know, because of you, and he didn't, the doctor didn't steal his lives. Um, but some one big difference, really, between um, this chapter and what you see on screen is that uh, kind of the fates of what happens to Chang Li and, and Grace, whereas on screen, um, Chang Li is uh, killed um, with a broken neck by the master. That doesn't happen here. He's When he refuses to uh, help the master by opening the eye, the master kind of just knocks him out, but he doesn't kill him. Um, and, of course, while this is happening, we see, like, on screen, kind of intercuts between all these other people, these other characters we've seen throughout the story. So the people in the the hospital, um, um, uh, Mrs. Uh, um, um, Trattario, this, that's the name of uh, Grace's um, neighbor that is not on screen, but we see her here, and we see how she's dealing with uh, and experiencing the, the new, um, the turn of the millennium. And, and then you just see, these, like I said, these other characters and um, the, the hospital staff, Professor Wagg and his staff, and how they're dealing with uh, the celebrations while all this is happening inside the TARDIS. And, and um, because Chang Li refuses to help and he's knocked out, the, the, uh, um, the master uh, unpossesses Grace, so her eyes are human again, and so he forces her to look inside the eye, and it opens the eye, and then there, there are these... Um, just like on screen, you have the kind of the, pretty much the end of the world, and um, the doctor, the eighth doctor, sends Grace into the to the console room to try to jumpstart the TARDIS. Um, and like on screen, you have um, you have the uh, master stealing the doctor's uh, um, life energy, his lives, and um, it's you know very interesting things how you have a. Um, some differences too of the effects and how how things are described. But it's pretty much it's, in that sense, it's it's similar to what you see on screen. Of course, the big difference is that uh, um, it, um, Chang Li is not killed by the master. Uh, he's simply he's simply knocked out. And just like at the in the telefilm, the uh, the uh, Earth is you know uh, pretty much destroyed practically by by the opened uh, malfunctioning TARDIS and the and the um, just like also on screen, the the chapter ends with uh, the doctor saying, "This this can't be how it ends. Stop this, please!" And everything goes white. So it's a uh, uh, this uh, sudden uh, cliffhanger sense of terror that's happening. And this is where the TV movie kind of lost me because I think it was Terence Dix who described it best in the Eight Doctors, which was the first BBC book's Eighth Doctor story after the novelization where he memorably described the TV movie as a weird, fantastic series of improbable, illogical occurrences. And this whole bit with the Eye of Harmony is exactly what he's talking about. So this is where you can't blame Gary for being given a bad script. And he tried his best to explain what's going on with Temporal Orbit and the Eye of Harmony, but it just makes no sense. And that's got to be on the production team, not on, not on the novelization writer. But... Right. In the TV movie, I think both Chang Li and Grace are killed and are somehow magically brought back to life in a stunning misuse of the Richard Donner Superman cut, where Superman turned back time to save Lois Lane. That's been done. I don't think Doctor Who should have done it. But because Chang Li and Grace don't die in the novelization, we are avoid a bit of unpleasantness. I would also point out a few interesting things. Just to jump back to Chapter 5, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. I think that was supposed to be Sophie Aldred as Sophie Aldred because she actually says ace. Sophie said ace to Gareth. So that's 
almost certainly the third major uh, name check of that chapter. And then there's two more name checks in this chapter, six for gold. Officers Selby and Buffini, I believe those were the two original editors of the Doctor Who line for BBC Books. I believe Nula Buffini is the woman who edited this book. So those characters were not on TV. That was a, a name check for the editors. And then when the Master is trying to take over the Doctor's body in the Eye of Harmony, the Eric Roberts Master says, a new body at last, which of course was... Anthony Ailey's first words as the master at the very end of Keeper of Chalk and one of my favorite stories. I was very happy to see that line of dialogue again. That was a bright moment in an otherwise dreary bit of business. Yes, there are a lot of interesting and not really explained things in this in the story at this point, like you said, you know, the the you know you know, the the revival, at least in the telefilm of Grace and Chang Lee and and like you say, they're not killed in this book, and like the the <laughs> the temporal orbits are such as like they they say, well, Doctor, what's a? It even says in the scripture, Doctor, what's a temporal orbit? What? Because we're in because we're in one, <laughs> we're inside one, and so um, that's pretty funny. Um, but you know, continuing forward into this last chapter, which is called Seven for a Secret Never to Be Told, um, the story picks up with Grace returning to the uh, to the cloister room and. Well, at least, you know, the Eye of Harmony and then the Cloister Room, and then um, Cheng Li, of course, is waking up. And he, and he, this is a very interesting thing that I like, which is that he, because he's still alive, obviously, he can see this. He sees, there's this neat little moment where the, when the Master's um, stealing the Doctor's life energy, his lives, and Cheng Li can see the, 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 the inside the Master's body. It says that he's able to see, like, stars and, 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 um, galaxies and and the universe and the cosmos within the masters within the ma- master's body um it reminds me a little bit of i think some of the target novelizations where you might have the face of william hartnell and you see the outline of his shoulders or chest but you see stars and 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 galaxies and nebula within within his within his body so that made me think of this you know um, that little callback, but the whole idea that there's something more to the master than just simply a, a body is, pro- I thought was very cool. And of course, um, Grace jump starts the TARDIS, the temporal orbit, and all that interesting ideas. Um, Grace is not killed by the master, um, and the Doctor and the master um, kind of engage in a little bit of a sword fight, which is a little bit different than on screen, using the uh, kind of the columns from the corners of the uh, Eye of Harmony. Um, and then uh, they have the Doctor Master this fight, but the Master overreaches something, and he falls into the Eye of Harmony and he seems to die. Um, the Eye closes, and uh, the Doctor, Grace, and Chang Lee return to the console room. And there's one interesting thing where the Doctor still says here, you know, you've done something I've never done, which is you cheated death, which is a very, very, very different context than in the telefilm, because in the telefilm they actually were killed, and the TARDIS, you know, the Doctor revives them, but here it's just a, it's a very different context. Um, uh, referring more to, you know, the fact that the, they looked into the Eye of Harmony and... Um, and it's very interesting that they weren't killed, but it's a very different context, that line. And the story finishes up with um, the Doctor, you know, again, we you know, returning the Grace and Chang Li, you know, to their normal point in time. There is a, before that happens, of course, there's a, there's still the, the sound within the TARDIS, and the Doctor thinks it's indigestion. Um, so he says so. We see the 
various characters again once um second time around experiencing the turn of the millennium and this time surviving uh the TARDIS materializes in a park singing old should old acquaintance be forgot um and they say their goodbyes the doctor gives uh, Chang Lee the uh, bag of gold dust she just tells him take a vacation just don't be here next year um and then the doctor and Grace say their goodbyes he invites her to come with him she refuses she invites him to come with her but he 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 leaves on his own way and uh, and and the story ends I'll read the you know words this very short little final scene the doctor leaves in the TARDIS and in the final scene says inside the console room the doctor punched some buttons and set the coordinates well old girl I don't know where I've just selected but let's hope it takes us somewhere interesting unusual and exciting he patted the console or at least somewhere that does a decent pot of tea um you know similar to what you saw on screen but a little bit different in that he you know doesn't he uh, <laughs> he doesn't doesn't uh, have a problem with the record player which like it does on screen at the beginning of the story when the master you know escapes it the record player skips same thing happens at the end of the story so there's no mention of this um but this is the end of the story and then uh, we go cut to credits and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and can we begin the eighth doctor's magical amazing and uh, interesting wonderful life so it's a very wonderful uh, wonderful way to begin in this novelization and when they hear Auld Lang Syne, the Doctor makes a reference to liking Scottish things and gives away Sylvester McCoy's hat to Grace. So that was a nice way of uh, the Eighth Doctor finally saying goodbye to the Seventh. I don't think any of that survived into the TV version, so there was no reference to the Scottish or no reference to the hat. Uh, so again, the resolution of the story doesn't make a lot of sense, but the denouement is very nice. Now, what's funny is when I was watching this in Baltimore in 1996, the TV station, uh, Fox 45, actually showed that scene twice. So when the TARDIS lands outside and the characters are talking in the rain, they showed that whole scene twice, adding like two minutes to the broadcast. And at the time, I thought it was just another part of the script. I thought it was they were showing it twice because something was going to happen the second time. I thought it was intentional. I didn't realize that it was a transmission error. And the dialogue when the Doctor's by himself in the TARDIS is very different from what we got on screen. So I imagine that all changed on location or in the edit. It was not part of the scripts that Gary was saying when he was writing this thing on a different continent. Um, we didn't talk much about the chapter titles, but that's actually the uh, a nursery rhyme. The nursery rhyme about magpies. Uh, one for sorrow, two for joy. And it actually goes on much further than seven. So you could have gotten a much longer book out of the same chapter titles. Maybe we'll get that in the new version that is going to be coming out next year. Oh, yes. Imagine all the titles since there's been so many doctors since then. Imagine how far it could go uh, all the way in all the way into the futures. That could, that's something to think about. Definitely. I had bought the novelization at Visions 1996, and they had a number of people there from the movie. So Philip Siegel was there. He was the producer who put it together. That was before he moved on to uh, reality and lifestyle TV and made his name there. And Yiji Cho was there, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as well as Gary Russell. So I have Philip Siegel's autograph on the title page of the book. And I have the actor who played Chang Lee's autograph on the title page of the book. And then I get down the end of the line to Gary Russell's autograph table. 
and I realized I haven't left the author any space to sign the title page of his own book. So I ended up having him sign the bottom of the last page, which is where the manuscript ends. And he was a little skeptical, but I think it looks very nice on my shelf that way, where you have the author signing at the very end of the book rather than on top. Maybe that'll start a new trend. So let's just go back full circle, and I'll finish my story about Dwight Gooden. So taking us back to May 14, 1996, I was living in Baltimore. This was after my first year of law school, and I was renting a room in a row house from two married graduate students, and I was sleeping on a flimsy futon mattress with no pillows, which I could do at age 22. I could not live like that today. The only place I would have had to watch the TV movie in their house was this 13-inch black-and-white TV on top of their refrigerator, which was not a good way to watch Doctor Who. I don't think 13-inch black-and-white TVs even exist anymore. But I somehow managed to persuade my ex-girlfriend two months after a very bitter breakup to let me go to her place and watch the episode on her slightly more glamorous 19-inch color TV set while she was out on a date with her new boyfriend, uh, don't ask. Now, the TV movie, in retrospect, like I said, made no sense, but Paul McGann was mesmerizing, and I was just exhilarated watching a Doctor Who episode without already knowing how it was going to end. But May 14, 1996, was the night that Dwight Gooden, my boyhood baseball hero, had made history of his own. Against the powerful Seattle Mariners, the team that had upset the Yankees in a surprise playoff victory the year before, Dwight pitched a no-hitter, which, for the non-American portion of our audience, is a very rare occurrence in baseball when the pitcher pitches a complete game, all nine innings, and does not allow the other team a single hit. This happens once or twice a year in baseball, if that, and if you pitch one, it guarantees you fame. For Dwight Good on that no-hitter on May 14, 1996, a Tuesday night, was an emotional comeback moment. The same way that the TV movie was Doctor Who's emotional comeback moment. But because I didn't have a smartphone, and because I was watching the movie in someone else's house, nobody was able to call me and tell me to change the channel and watch what Dwight Gooden was doing. So I missed it. And my boyhood hero had his greatest moment in baseball, and I didn't find out until the following day. And unfortunately, the good times didn't last. They didn't last for Doctor Who. They didn't last for Dwight Gooden. White continued to pitch for the Yankees and three other teams up until the year 2000, but he never pitched a no-hitter, and he never quite matched his incandescent mid-1980s success. Likewise, the TV movie did not portend great things for Doctor Who. It was dwarfed in the ratings by a pivotal sleeps episode of Roseanne and got rejected by Fox as a series in favor of a third season of Sliders. And if you remember Sliders, boy, you're some fan. Eventually, Doctor Who did come back, but the TV movie, alas, had little to do with it. So that is the TV movie, and more importantly, that is Gary Russell's tremendously enjoyable novelization of the same. Chris, thank you so much for joining me for this guest host edition of Trap One. Chris, where can we find you on the internet? Oh, yes. um, You can find me... um through Black Love Studio, um, most often on Twitter. We have a Facebook page, and it's not terribly uh, uh, used there active, but uh, a Black Love Studio Facebook page. And we also have an Instagram page that we're trying to set up, and I'm trying to use that a little bit more, also Black Love Studio. But the main place where you find me on social media is um, on Twitter uh, with the handle at Studio Glove, capital S, capital G. 
and we have our regular updates and uh, announcements of our uh, current in production and upcoming produced uh, stories. So yes, you can find you can find me there. Uh, like I said, Black Love Studio on uh, on Twitter, and it's uh, and again the handle is at Studio Glove. And as always, I can be found on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, Dr. Who Novels, and my very occasionally updated DrWhoNovels.wordpress.com. On behalf of Chris and on behalf of Mark, thank you very much for joining us on the Trap One podcast. Mark will return in August as we talk about the new vinyl release of The Massacre. Good night now. Thank you.